0: A Foreign Affair is the title of this session. I'm delighted uh, to welcome two very special guests to the stage, Australia's Foreign Minister, Senator the Honourable Bob Carr, and the Sydney Morning Herald's political editor and and, um, foreign correspondent, not quite sure whether he's honourable or not, Peter Harcher, to examine the challenges ahead for uh, Australia in Asia. I first uh, came across Bob Carr over 40 years ago Uh, when we were both working for the ABC. I was in the pits of the ABC in the less than prestigious news department stoking the boilers and getting soot on my brow while Bob over here was working in the very prestigious department that ran AM and PM. Despite that, I stayed in journalism. He went into uh, politics and uh, did that uh, through various uh, circuitous ways, ending up as... uh, state member in the New South Wales Parliament, hoping to use that as a stepping stone to become Minister for Foreign Affairs. But he thought without the presence of one Barry Unsworth, the killer with the cardigan, he took one for the party (laughs) in 1988 and rather than uh, going into Federal Parliament, which would probably have guaranteed he became Foreign Minister much earlier than he actually did, Laurie Brereton took the seat that he was hoping to take and Laurie went on to a distinguished career as a federal minister. And then, lo and behold, as Bob Dylan once said, uh, come the beginning of this year, uh, after then Mr Carr had had a very distinguished career in state politics, becoming the longest-serving Premier of New South Wales and retiring at his own leisure uh, to a life of blogging, very candidly, I might say, and, um, and very usefully for those of us who remain within the journalistic profession. But then uh, a phone call came from uh, the then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, earlier this year, asking him whether he would like to become Foreign Minister. It did not take a moment for Mr. Carr to say, yes, he would really enjoy to uh, join the unrepresentative swill in the Senate and become Foreign Minister of Australia. And uh, not only that, he now gets a chance because uh, Kevin Rudd has foregone the opportunity to go to St Petersburg and look at all those beautiful paintings in the Hermitage uh, on September the 5th and 6th and he will deputise. He assures me that he won't go there unless there's an official dinner but um, we will see and we'll have cameras there, Bob. So well, it's I've a I've d- all the <laughs> <are very beautiful laughs> pictures, Most of them are
1: in a very bad condition
0: anyway. Well... I'm sure you would know that. I'm glad you're telling us that. But it's a delight to have you, he- you here <laughs> It's a delight to have you here, and also too, to my old colleague, uh, Peter Harcher, who, when I first met him in the early 1990s, was a precocious political correspondent, chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. He was younger than me then, and unfortunately, he will be younger than me always. But not only <laughs> is he a gold Walkley winner and a former foreign correspondent in both Tokyo and in Washington, a visiting fellow at the Lowy Institute. Not only does he write columns and break stories, but he also writes books, which is, uh, uh, characterises a remarkably full life. We are extremely privileged indeed to have both of them here to discuss Australia's foreign policy into the future. I'd ask you to welcome Senator Bob Carr, and Peter Harcher.
2: Thank you, Jim. Of course, uh, Jim's being ironic when he describes you as uh, being part of the unrepresentative swill, but, um, which was Paul Keating's famous term for the, uh, for the Senate. Um, but can I ask you about a, a, a genuinely, um, a, someone who would genuinely be regarded as unrepresentative swill, uh, and that is um, uh, Eddie O'Bee. Um, The first thing Kevin Rudd did when he took the the leadership back was to intervene in the New South Wales branch, which was the end point of of that uh, uh, very sorry saga of the Eddie Obeid career. Um, But you were there at the beginning of it. You appointed him uh, to the ministry. Uh, Do you accept any responsibility for the creation of the monster that became what we saw in ICAC?
1: Not 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 remotely. Um, I, uh, there's no minister who performed corrupt acts while I was Premier. And uh, not ICAC, uh, not the state opposition, I'll allege that. Um, but if I can say this, um, uh, not the Sydney Morning Herald, not your paper, not the ABC, not any media outlet, had an allegation that was sustained against a bead any time while he was in my cabinet. If they did, I would have had him ritually executed on the grounds of Government House. Um, No one...
2: Yeah, no, no
1: errant minister was going to hurt me or my government. I maintained the very strictest standards, and after he'd been there, and he had support in the Parliamentary Party, but at that time there was no mark against him on probity grounds. Now that has changed spectacularly, Uh, with ICAC proving its value to the people of New South Wales. But after after he was in the Cabinet four years, and again without a mark against him on probity grounds, I insisted on his removal from the Cabinet. And I was was vehement on it, and that's not an overstated adjective because I remember the encounter with him. I, I retold this story on Four Corners. Yes. Um, And then I I confronted colleagues one after the other and said, um, look, if he he defies my advice um, and it comes to a vote in the the factional caucus held before the caucus proper, I really expect you to vote against him. Uh, Far from standing aside, as Miranda Devine suggested in a column on the weekend, I got my hands dirty by having members of the caucus come into my office one after the other and saying, I don't care if this guy's been kind and supportive to you, I don't care if he's been a mentor to you, I want him out of the cabinet. And that was before there was any mark against him.
2: You get credit for that, but was it an error of judgment appointing him minister in the first place?
1: Well, he had support in the caucus. I didn't. Unlike Kevin Rudd, I did not have rules that enabled me to appoint ministers. So, if they had support in the caucus, and they're going to be elected, uh, they made themselves an inevitability the caucus was elected, so I had to accept the the level of support that gave an MP, a backbench, the capacity to get into the cabinet. But with the authority I had in 2003, I said, no, we want new talent in the cabinet. You've had four years there. um, And four years is not a claim on eight years. I want you to step down.
2: Does the Labor Party owe Australia an apology uh, for the creation of that cesspit of corruption that emerged? I, th- I think they do owe
1: Australia an apology, and they've said that. Uh, John Robertson said it, uh, Kevin
2: Rudd has said it. Would you say it?
1: Um, absolutely, on, on, uh, and I said it on Four Corners uh, uh, implicitly that uh, for the O'Beat affair, um, the, uh, the ALP in New South Wales, I don't think this touches federal Labor but the state caucus and the state machine owe an apology. And I think think it's got to be said that after I, as parliamentary leader, insisted on him leaving the ministry and moved heaven and earth to see that that was enforced, he should not have gone back into the upper house. That was the mistake. The mistake was won by the party machine to say, OK, you're now a backbencher, you've served in the cabinet, but uh, instead of saying we really require you to step down at the next election. They put him on the ticket, and the 2007 state election, he sailed back into the upper house. I was out of it by then. I'd retired in 2005 after getting, getting him out of the ministry in 2003. But the machine should have told him, you've had your day, you move on. This corruption occurred, I think, after... 07, 08. I think. I think. Don't hold me to it. But I think, ICAC was canvassing things that occurred then. If he'd been, if he'd been surgically excised from the state parliamentary Labour Party, if the machine had followed the lead I gave them by getting him out of the, the cabinet, the party would have saved itself a great deal of discredit.
2: Absolutely. Uh, you're uh, uh, standing for re-election. You're. Now, in an election campaign, so thank you for uh, making time to come along. Um, You're uh, number one on the Senate ticket for New South Wales. Um, How will you spend the campaign? I'm
1: doing a lot of work with ethnic communities. I'm I'm meeting um, uh, the leadership of uh, one part of the leadership of the Vietnamese community at dinner tonight. Um, I'll be addressing a big Islamic gathering in Melbourne on Sunday night. Um, If I weren't going to that, I'd be at a big Chinese gathering in Sydney on Sunday night, I'm opening a, uh, the Kingston Smith campaign for Matt Thistlewait on Saturday morning. Um, I get time to read the cables and call the occasional foreign minister in between this.
2: And one of the things you'll be doing uh, between now and election day, in fact, on election day, you'll be at a, in St. Petersburg, representing Australia at a G20 summit. Uh, you'll be surrounded by, you're a foreign minister, but you'll be surrounded by presidents. And Prime Ministers. Would you be happier if Kevin Rudd were there representing Australia instead? Yeah, of
1: course I would be. Of course I would be. Um, uh, but um, I'll do what I can do um, in the circumstances uh, following very carefully the script that he's certain to give me.
2: <laughs> uh, Australia is going to be the incoming host country. Um, what are, the, uh, uh, what are the responsibilities that you, you, ne- you need to discharge?
1: Yeah, I think the, the biggest part of it is, is restating the relevance of the G20. The G20 was put together very largely in the context of the challenges to the global financial system. We, we're on it. It was the 12th biggest economy in the world. That's, that was an important gain for Australia. Australia's a, Australia's a creative middle power, Perhaps, as some commentators say, a, a middle power that punches above, above its weight. It's a, it's a gain for us to get into a, a body like that, but we want the G20 to continue to be to be seen as relevant, and not to see a, a drift of attention back to a, uh, a G8. And I think I think persuading, hel- helping persuade bigger players in the world that the G20 is important. Um, is the major Australian challenge, and do, indeed,
2: you, do you achieve that by not sending the Prime Minister?
1: Well, it, it, we've got to recognise it. every every government there, every other member of the G20 will recognise it in the middle of an election campaign. I mean, they're all they're all leaders who face elections in one form or another. Um, <laughs> the, Saudi yeah, Arabia is in the G20, isn't it? Um, we will uh, we'll pursue that later. I, uh,
2: <laughs> I,
1: um, I, I'm sure there's an internal selection system. Oh, okay. Um, and there was a six-month six transition in China, as you're well aware, that only ended in March this year. So, so the, membership of the, the membership of the G20 would understand the difficulties of a, a head of government
2: getting there in the middle of a,
1: an election campaign.
2: How did the G20 become irrelevant if it needs its relevance restored? I'm not saying it is
1: irrelevant, but I'm saying we've got to be, we've got to be alert. We've got to be alert. I didn't say that. We, we've got to be alert to any drift... Away from seeing it as the, the vital forum it became, faced with, with pressing matters of international economic performance.
2: So Australia has got an opportunity—a big opportunity, and a, a rare opportunity—both hosting the G20 in the year ahead, yes. plus with a seat on the UN Security Council. Um, what is the agenda? What are the major problems that your you, your government, our country, should contribute to trying to solve uh, with those opportunities?
1: Well, let's let's look at at where Australia's developed a brand for itself in these and other international settings. I say in others because we are very prominent in Geneva. Um, We are seen, with the Japanese, as being one of the sponsors of the non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament agenda we think this noble agenda has got to be kept alive. It's a battle, but it's a cause that enjoys the recognition and support of this US president. I think non-proliferation is one of President Obama's core commitments. And there are seasoned international statesmen who see... Nuclear disarmament as being something that's got to be kept on the world agenda. The, the last Labor government, with the Canberra Commission, did more than any other government in the world to highlight, and we've continued in that, in that tradition. Like the man in the ancient Hebrew story who he was told to sit on the wall and wait for the coming of the millennium. It's got to be said, the work is steady. The work is steady, but it's, it's something Australia is committed to. Again, we, we were one of the, we were the most prominent sponsor of an international arms trade treaty. Our ambassador, Peter Woolcott chaired the the final meetings that nailed that treaty down. For the first time, the world has got conventions that restrain the sale, the distribution, the illegal sale of small arms, Kalashnikov rifles that are a cliche in any civil war anywhere in the world. Um, 2,000 deaths a day is estimated as a result of the ebb and flow of small weapons around the planet. So we were there, we were there with the Caribbeans, uh, with many of the African states, um, pursuing this. And again, that's that's a hallmark, hallmark Australian, i say Australian labour diplomacy to pursue that okay. and to get it. But uh, can, I, can I tell you a story about how we're seen? And it might surprise many people. In making a bid for election to the Security Council, I went to a meeting in a boardroom in New York of the 14 nations of CARICOM. These are the nations of the Caribbean. Now, you might say uh, uh, Grenada and uh, the Dominic- Dominican Republic are a long way from Australia. We've got little resonance, little in common. But I was making a pitch to get their 14 votes. So I went through it, committed on climate change, committed on protecting the world environment, committed to an arms trade treaty, which they were strongly supportive of. And here's a small one, but it had a great deal of resonance. They, they wanted a monument to the transatlantic slave trade. And Kevin Rudd, to his great credit, put up, I think, $150,000. It's for a physical monument, but also for an interactive website. This is a very big thing in the heritage of the Caribbean world formed, shaped as it was, by a legacy of immensely cruel slavery. So I went through this, I went through this checklist, and Decima Williams, the permanent representative of Granada in the UN, stood up and responded. She said, well, we can tell you, Mr Foreign Minister, that we've considered this, as we've done twice in the past, and all 14 of us have agreed to support Australia in its election." You mentioned the issues that are important to us, climate change, your strong stand in Australia, the uh, Arms Trade Treaty, which is so important to us, commitment to the marine environment, and it's good to hear you say that you spoke about it in your inaugural speech as Foreign Minister in the Senate, um, and your support for that monument to the transatlantic slave trade. Of course, we expected no less from a government that's got an ethical basis for its policies as reflected in the apology, the apology. And I thought, what a sweet compliment for Australia, all the way from the Caribbean. And we got their votes. The 14 of them voted for us. A long way from Australia, no obvious um, commonality of interest. But they liked all those things about Australia, and it just struck me then that your foreign policy is the reputation you've got for the totality of your actions and your character. It's your character projected overseas. And in a sense, in these international fora, it is us being what we are. So when we use our position in Geneva to, to leverage an inquiry into human rights in North Korea and get Michael Kirby up as an Australian to head that inquiry, it's Australia being what it is, that, that creative middle power with, a, as Decimer Williams said it, with a reputation for uh, an ethical basis to its policies.
2: Well, on that exact point, uh, what's your response? Would you agree with um, uh, your, your Labor colleague and the uh, Speaker, the outgoing Speaker of the outgoing Parliament, Anna Burke, uh, who says that the government's new policy on uh, asylum seekers is, uh, is cruel and inhumane? Yeah, is, I- that, is that a part of the Australian character, and are we projecting that as part of our national character? Well,
1: we can't be embarrassed about projecting it. Um, I've spoken to several foreign ministers admittedly from our region, in the last couple of days. And they're grappling with the same problem. They're grappling with the same problem. And that's why Indonesia has said we'll sponsor a a conference, not only on people smuggling, but human trafficking and irregular immigration in Jakarta on August the 20th. Here's the dilemma, the exquisite dilemma Australia faced. I was like, I guess, most people in this room when we had a couple of hundred people being brought here on boats a year. Why why the hell didn't John Howard just allow them to slide sideways into the Australian population mix? Who would have noticed? What would have been the downside? That was my response. I guess it was a a common response. You remember the, the 2001 election where he elevated the issue as a divisive thing that did him some good politically. But you've got a fundamentally different position today. And I just challenge people with noble, humane instincts on refugees to consider the position we face today. The growth in people smuggling and the fact that there are 40 million displaced people on the planet, several million in Asia, means that you've got people smugglers bringing all the people who come without a visa by boats and you've had a very noticeable spike in numbers. So arriving now at 3000 a month you've got an annualized rate getting close to 40,000 we fear that if it can get to 40,000 so easily it could be driven higher as more and more people smugglers cash in on this and that's it's already now 20% of the Australian migrant intake now hang on that's 20% of migrants who come to Australia coming by a regular means coming with people smugglers bringing them to Christmas Island Now, I don't think we can hold public support for a generous large immigration program with a large humanitarian intake if the Australian people see that people smugglers now deliver 20% of the intake. Now, that's the challenge. And it's inhumane to live with that status quo because the people smugglers don't give us stuff. They're, They're cramming people on unseaworthy vessels and pushing them out of ports in Java, and they're sinking. They're sinking in those oceans, and some of them have been designed to sink when there's an Australian vessel alongside. Now the, the people smugglers, for the most part, have got the, the mentality and the instincts of uh, of the guy in the the uh, the great Orson Welles movie set in Vienna, the the Third Man, in the uh, up in the up in the Ferris wheel, looking down on little dots of humanity, thinking, "So what if I dilute penicillin?" If one of those dots falls over, what does it matter? I mean, that's the psychology of people smugglers. They don't give a damn about deaths at sea. And we've got, we've got to deliver a, deliver a body blow to the people smuggler model. And that's why we've settled on this plan that says, listen, we'll take people from the camps. We'll increase the humanitarian intake from 20,000 to 27,000 a year. We're already the second largest in the world. But we'll increase it further, providing we can stop the people smuggler monopoly—that's bringing 20% now of the migrant intake by this irregular means—and
2: when you say it challenges the sustainability of the overall uh, immigration <coughs> intake, you mean what—that a, a government could be forced to cut back, or yes, or what? yes,
1: that, yes, that, and the rise of the rise of, uh, of uh, hostility towards something that has had support across the community a large generous immigration program that is responsible for the happy fact that one quarter of Australians were born overseas and then a, a whole other chunk of the sons and daughters of parents born overseas and that we all get on exceedingly well. The sons and daughters of, of migrants do so well at school. The signs of the signs of, of harmony are very striking. They override any signs of disharmony and that we are not a model for the world, we wouldn't be so pretentious and crass, but an interesting, an interesting point of reference for the world. I don't want that, no, Kevin Rudd doesn't want that to be challenged by people, by, by people in Australia saying we're losing control of this. 40%, 60% are now coming by people smuggling. We can't allow, we can't allow it to grow at this rate. And you just but the one way of doing it is to send a message to people in Iran, look, if you give $16,000 to a people smuggler, you're not going to end up in Australian waters being reselled in Australia. You're going to go to these developing countries, and it is tough, but we've got people in refugee camps run by the UN around the world who've got refugee status and are waiting for a chance to get to Australia, and you're going to have to accommodate that assessment process.
2: The point you just mentioned, that a government might have to consider the size of the overall program, had that actually been uh, discussed inside the government, either uh, under Gillard or Rudd?
1: No, I can't say that. I'm attempting to interpret the pressures here, just projecting ahead if the numbers running now at 3,000 a month, when they used to be a couple of hundred a year, were to continue to grow because it's a business. It's a business around the world. I, I was talking to the Foreign Minister of uh, Mauritius recently and he spoke about how criminality across the Sahel now comprises the, the, the band uh, in the semi-arid zone just below the Sahara. And, and the criminal activity comprises human trafficking, which includes people smuggling, um, arms trade and the drugs trade. You said Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. It's a large part of its income from human trafficking and from the drugs trade, and it's probably got an income greater than the defence budgets of four of the Maghreb nations combined. Now, this is an international traffic based on the large number of displaced people in the world, an estimated 40 million, and, and people smuggling will grow exponentially unless we serve up an abrupt shock to this business model and say to people, pe- people currently in Tehran, because that's where the spikers come from, that you won't get through to Australia. Now, go to the Australian embassy and apply by regular
2: means. You mentioned the upcoming uh, regional meeting of ministers in mm. Jakarta. Do you expect uh, any concrete agreements to be reached there? What should we expect from We've got three there? categories
1: of nations. You've got source nations, um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, Iran... You've got transit nations, Malaysia and Indonesia, and you've got destination nations, Australia and Canada. Um, we've got to tie together our perspectives on this problem. And it's interesting, talking to Indonesia and Malaysia, they they see that the rise in Iranian numbers
2: is a challenge for
1: them. For various reasons, it's presenting them with a challenge.
2: Do you expect there to be some, any concrete agreement? From them? I think so, yes. Along what lines to achieve... What? I think,
1: I think um, uh, defining the, uh, the responsibilities of various countries affected by this. I think um, we've already seen signs of uh, transit countries looking at the visa treatment they give to uh, incoming people.
2: This is Indonesia, Malaysia? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's in the public news, and I think, I think recognising that... Um, and then they're looking to Australia for a response. I mean, they, they've said several times, don't demonise us, we're the transit countries, what are you doing? Well, now, because of Kevin Rudd's initiative, we're able to say, look, we, we recognise people smuggling is a deadly serious problem, people are dying at sea, we want to end the business model, and we're doing it by striking these regional resettlement arrangements with Nauru and, and p g And I expect... It won't happen overnight. It won't happen overnight, but I expect, as the message is absorbed back in Tehran, um, that this is where you'll be resettled. This is where you'll be processed. You'll see. You, you, you will see an end to the the people smuggler business model.
2: Do you think any? I've got to say,
1: among the critics of this, and a lot of a lot of the critics are extremely well-meaning people with humanitarian instincts. I've noticed two things, and I say this respectfully. One, just a a stubborn failure to recognise that the spike in numbers is a recent reality that changes the quality of the problem. I agreed with humanitarian advocates, refugee advocates, back in 2001, 2004, that the numbers were so small, the more humane solution is to allow them simply to slide sideways into the Australian population. But I just challenged them to recognise... The fundamental, the qualitative difference of the problem we face now: 3,000 a month, 40,000 a year, 20% of the Australian migrant intake contracted out, privatised. You know, mm. we, don't, we don't run this; we've given it to these, these, pretty demonic people. Mm. And the second thing is, among the critics, is that I, I don't recognise a feasible alternative that is going to stop. The people smuggling.
2: Do you think there'll be any discernible uh, decrease in the flow of, uh, of boat people by election day? Do you think this is I, something I, I think measurable? Look,
1: I, I think that's probably going to be. Uh, that, that may be too ambitious. I think, I think as Kevin Rudd has said, uh, the policy will, will succeed, but with some. Um, uh, it, it won't be an even process. There'll be some fits and so, so, some. Uh, stops and starts along the way, um, but it's, it's definitely in the right direction. And if your goal is to have people come in increasing numbers in a humanitarian intake out of the camps, out of the refugee camps, to see an end to this dangerous passage by sea and to force people smugglers to give up because they're not getting customers, this is the practical solution to be, to be
2: implemented uh, Papua New Guinea has been notably uh, cooperative with Australia uh, in this, on this agenda. Um, how are your relations? Have they forgiven you for your early threat to impose sanctions? Uh,
1: oh, yeah. yeah. Now that was stupid. Stupid of me. But um, almost by obligation, a foreign minister has got to make a gaffe in his first few months. That was your quota. And, and that, that was a good one, but it, it, pales, into, <laughs> it pales into insignificance compared to some <laughs> that my predecessors have made. Um, but I learned a lot from that.
2: Well, um, very refreshing, but I've such been a frank admission. Book. Yeah,
1: I've been up there. It's a statutory obligation for a foreign minister to have a gaffe in his first three months. Um, <laughs> but I've been up there, I've been there on um, two occasions as foreign minister and uh, our relations with the O'Neill government and mine with Rimbing Pato are pretty good. I mean, I went, I went to the foreign minister's electorate in the Highlands and uh, so warm with the relations that I was ceremonially presented with a pig and... Uh, for days in Sydney, I couldn't walk around the streets with, without being asked, "What am I doing with the pig?"
2: I think I read something about this. You donated it to another family, didn't you?
1: Yeah, to an animal welfare charity. Animal
2: welfare charity. Thank you.
1: No, I'm kidding. No, Are there no, any no. other
2: gaffes you want to admit to while we're in the? No,
1: no, no. It's <laughs> amazingly gaff-free in the period since.
2: Okay. Uh, well, we, we, you know, we, we live in hope. Um, <laughs>
1: I'm treading very carefully today, Peter.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, The G20, the UN Security Council, the opportunities Australia has for improving, advancing the national interest, improving the world, you only mentioned one. You only mentioned non-proliferation. What about all the other...
1: Oh, the arms Arms trade treaty? Yes. Uh, Work on on Syria, where I've got to admit to a a disappointing failure by us to get up a position that I argued strongly for, and that is a medical pact on Syria. Um, we, We face a deadlock between America and the Europeans on one hand, and on the other hand, uh, Russia and China, supporting the Assad government. And we we still don't have a date for uh, Geneva 2. We have no agreed plan for a ceasefire in Syria and a peaceful political transition towards a plural democratic Syria. My naive notion was that in the absence of that big agreement we could at least get all the countries of the world to agree on protection for medical convoys, protection for doctors and nurses within the country, and for for medical facilities, for hospitals not being used as bases or targeted by one side or the other. And I can't tell you how hard hard it has been to advance this and the rest of the humanitarian agenda on Syria. So I've got to admit as I think other foreign ministers would have admitted from time to time, to the the frustration of making things happen is the national fora.
2: And who are the obstacles there? Is it China and Russia or are there others?
1: No, I think that's too simple. I think on both sides there's a reluctance to just set the more ambitious agenda of ceasefire and political transition to one side and to say, well, we're still working on that, will emphasise the humanitarian intervention. Well, in the meantime, the country's run out of medicine. In the meantime, 60% of the hospitals have been destroyed. In the meantime, doctors and nurses are being shot dead in the foyers of hospitals because yesterday or last week they treated someone from the other side.
2: So realistically, this conflict is now just going to have to burn itself out uh, for as long as it takes? (laughs) Well,
1: uh, I think a lot of people observing it would be thinking what matters most is an end to the suffering for the people of Syria and I've been on two occasions to refugee camps and Australia is a very big humanitarian contributor. That's why I I suggest without boasting that I think we punch above our weight in in many areas of the world Um, to see Australians working for international organisations as well with money Australia has given them. To, to alleviate just slightly the suffering of Syrian refugees is to be moved by what Australians can do. Um, I, I, find, I find myself on Syria just hoping for a victory by one side or the other so the suffering ends. Well, so then current you the current
2: trajectory, the tide of battle turned, the rebels lost their initial momentum. The regime seems now to be the dominant force. Uh, do you expect Bashar al-Assad will survive this? Will he be the ultimate victor?
1: Well, certainly the intelligence has changed. The intelligence uh, late last year was pointing to a uh, pretty quick regime collapse. And uh, it's been proven wrong uh, for various reasons. The resupply from Russia, um, uh, the arrival of Hezbollah fighting on in another Arab country for the first time in its history, the most powerful non-state entity in the world today, um, serious fighters, um, it's, it certainly appears to have tilted towards Assad and his allies. But what we've got to continue to work for, and we've been doing this in the Security Council as one of the 15 members, is an agreement on a ceasefire and on all sides to this conflict saying, let's, let's design, let's settle on the, the peaceful political transition that was agreed, spelled out at Geneva last year. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a plan for doing it, to have an interim governing transition council with full executive authority, and in the end to have the people of Syria vote for the composition of their government. And, and one hopes to get a coalition government to enable this, uh, this people to retrieve uh, a life from uh, the tragedy that has engulfed and This is the destruction of a country. That's the only way you can look at it, the, the destruction of a nation state. Absolutely,
2: and the prospects are extremely grim. In a minute, we're going to throw to a Q&A so the audience can um, have a crack at you too, Bob. Um, mm. I just want to ask you one more before we, before we do that. Mm. Um, one of the grand uh, questions of our age uh, on which Australia's fate turns to is the nature of China, the power in, in the shape it emerges. Um, How do you see the prospects for uh, uh, China's assertiveness? It's been uh, pressing outwards, testing its ability uh, to enlarge its territorial claims. Do you see that continuing? Do you see any success? And does Australia have a part in trying to uh, moderate uh, China's assertiveness?
1: If you take South China Sea, uh, there's one part of me that says Australia should be there with a peace plan. Um, I contemplated that. But we're up against two facts. China will not contemplate the internationalisation of what it sees as bilateral disputes with individual countries. preeminently Philippines and Vietnam and uh, on the periphery Malaysia and Brunei. So China is not about to agree to any internationalisation of this. The Chinese position even resists arbitration under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. The second fact is ASEAN, seeing itself correctly as central to the region, when it comes to the Code of Conduct, wants to see its centrality underlined, re-emphasized. And to have a a non-ASEAN player arriving on the scene offering... uh, A role in arbitration would not be welcome. What we can do is very modestly on the sidelines make it clear to both sides that there is something to be explored here in looking at the setting aside of the disputes over sovereignty, over who owns this stretch of water, who owns this reef. Just set that aside and, and strike an agreement to develop the resources and split the proceeds. A resource sharing agreement. There are three precedents for this in Southeast Asia, one in Antarctica. And we're funding very quietly some informal work at universities, informal dialogues at universities that will, we hope, engage the parties. And when we've spoken in the region about this, we've, we've gently nudged forward the idea of, of the stilling of the argument about sovereignty and the uh, exploration of a, um, a resource-sharing agreement for the territory concerned. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of value in that. And in the meantime, we urge re- restraint and we urge the management of the dispute
2: so through a code of conduct. are you planning to advance that idea in this Yes, r- we are. Situation? Yeah, that, but, but What's the forum? How would you do that?
1: Um, a couple of universities seeding studies that would see and, and, and then involve... Involving academics, specialists on the international law of the sea, and then bringing in representatives of the
2: governments. Any indication of China's degree of receptiveness? Yes. I've
1: raised the the notion with China, and um, uh, there have been there have been uh, uh, you know, responses that have been uh, that the notion has been acknowledged, um, but not embraced.
0: Jim, do we want to do some you yeah. and now? It's been an uh, an elucidating and edifying discussion indeed so far, but better let the uh, paying customers have a a bit of a go. So uh, if you you wish to come down to the front uh, and uh, ask a question, that's probably better for everyone if you do. And of course, uh, those of you who wish to uh, participate through Twitter, you can ask questions using the hashtag Storyology It comes as no surprise to us that Richard Bronofsky has a a question for the Foreign Minister.
3: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Jim. Minister, I hope it's a question. Yes, it is a question. President Rouhani in Iran said today that sanctions are not the way to get them to change their policy on nuclear developments. Uh, We're not subject to pressure. We want to have discussions. He seems a lot more reasonable prima facie than his predecessor Ahmadinejad. Is it possible, Minister, that Australia, with its seat on the Security Council, instead of following the United States in improving, increasing the sanctions all the time because that's the reason why we've got a spike in Iranians leaving that country, should instead try to moderate or initiate a discussion that says let's talk to them and let's reduce those sanctions and maybe just maybe the problem of boat people from Iran might, might, might diminish? Well,
1: that's a very fair question. Um, there have been talks. It's not that there haven't been talks. There have been three or four rounds of the what are known as the, the P5 plus 1 talks. At times, uh, the people talking to, um, to the Iranians have been optimistic. Cathy uh, Ashton, the... The European Union Commissioner for Foreign Affairs um, told me uh, early last year that she found found the President's advisor on foreign policy, the Iranian President's advisor on foreign policy, offering hope. Um, So there have been hopeful phases in those talks, and then the the hope has drained from them. Let's analyse what the new President has said. Let's acknowledge his moderation compared with that of his very adversarial predecessor, while realistically acknowledging as well that in their system, in their theocratic system, it's the supreme leader who's got real authority, not the president. But let's be open to the idea of talks, absolutely open to them. And uh, the winding back of sanctions would follow serious... Serious movement by the regime—a movement away from enrichment and the opening, the opening of their facilities to international inspection. But we must—I agree with the sentiment behind your question, and that we must never disdain negotiations. It's the way adversaries avoid war. Another question,
0: just here. My question is about Afghanistan. Um, the UN just reported a jump in civilian casualties there, and particularly women and children, and I was wondering what um, Australia plans to do with its Security Council seat to protect women in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. Wh- when I addressed the Security Council and the debate on Afghanistan, a debate on a motion to renew the UN mandate uh, on Afghanistan, I spoke about one of the key indicators being the position of women and girls in that country. I did so to send a message to the Afghan representatives there that we regarded that as a key indicator and wanted them to know that we expected them to report progress in exchange for the the continuing UN presence and indeed for our aid and military program of support. I would like to think the gains for women, the girls in schools, the millions of girls in schools when in 2001 there were barely tens of thousands in schools represent an irreversible change in the country. I'd like to think that were um, elements of the insurgency admitted to a coalition government sometime in the future. As you know, there have been discussions about this. It's a, a classic part of counterinsurgency, but it's it's up to the Americans, really, in their, in their strategy to deliver it. We have no influence on it. But if that were to happen, I'd like to think, again, that the insurgent elements admitted to a sheer of power would accept the new position that women and girls occupy
0: in Afghanistan.
1: I've got to say, I'm apprehensive.
0: Question over on my right.
4: Uh, My name is uh, Adrian Ustazen. Senator Carr, uh, uh, last week week Zimbabwe went to the elections. Uh, uh, It it turned out to be another travesty um, uh, by the uh, Mugabe regime, another rigged election. uh, uh, The Australian government was uh, reported to have said that that they will push for a rerun of that election. I'd like to ask you... uh, how you would do this, and also what stronger measures you may take to force the uh, Mugabe government into recognising that, the, uh, that the, world, uh, the rest of the world is uh, tired of uh, probably his fourth uh, stolen election?
1: Well, it's a very, very sad situation. Uh, we, we'd set out a plan by which we'd peeled back our sanctions on Zimbabwe, Um, In three stages, well, we passed two of those stages, the new constitution, the setting of the date for the election. We've got to say the third test, on the third test, the regime failed. And it's heartbreaking to think of those people suffering from the economic depredations (coughs) that are inseparable from dictatorship. Wherever you look in the world, dictatorship means declining living standards. Look at the, the suffering in Myanmar... After uh, decades of of dictatorship, uh, 50% of the people stunted because of childhood malnutrition. 50% don't get through primary school. Um, And and it's true, too, of Zimbabwe. I've I've said I've I've gone, in these verbal expressions that are comprised diplomacy, I've gone beyond other countries. I've said the the elections were so bad, um, there should be a rerun. But I recognise that this is going to fall on... uh, the, uh, uh, the, the deaf ears of a, uh, a, proven, a proven dictatorship that set out to rig those elections. They, they were comprehensively rigged. We can talk about elections in the world that had their flaws and shortcomings, but uh, this was one that, that I mean, you, you said it so well uh, when you used the adjective Stalinoid. This was, a, this was worthy of a Stalin. There were <laughs> stuffed ballot boxes. Being delivered to polling booths.
0: Not much more you can say to that. Do we have another question? Just up on my left here. So as a
1: result, we'll we'll maintain the sanctions. But um, I can't say in respect of Zimbabwe, they've had a demonstrated effect on the behaviour of the regime.
4: Senator Car Catherine Zangula from The Wire. I'm just wondering, in relation to your comments about um, refugees or asylum seekers being economic uh, refugees, do you think that you have to be poor to be a genuine refugee, and if so, why?
1: No, I didn't say that. In in Jakarta, I said that um, on the recent boats, on the recent boats, uh, our officials were telling us um, they were economic migrants, not refugees. So on recent boats, that was the case. And indeed, they said that themselves. The people on the boat said it themselves, so there were several boats, I think probably more than several, from Sri Lanka where, when interviewed by the immigration officials, uh, the people on the boat said they were coming to Australia to improve themselves. Um, They didn't say they were fleeing persecution. So that's that's the basis for my comment and the same comments came from boats with Iranians. Um, Now I've got to say I'm not suggesting we be harsh to people who are taking this terrible journey at sea to improve themselves in a a fantastically prosperous country like Australia, but I am saying that's what you've got a regular migration program for. That's what you've got people all around the world seeking to come to Australia by regular means for. And that's what you can't subcontract to people smugglers. You can't subcontract that the people smugglers. And uh, Again, people with all the best instincts towards refugees. They've got to contemplate, one, all of these people on boats now are being brought here by people smugglers. There's not a single boat coming that's been put together in a port by people fleeing the way they did from Indochina. I I know Vietnamese uh, refugees, Um, when they got out, the people piloting the boat, the people who paid for the boat, were travelling themselves. The, the, what we're seeing now is a business operation and all the migration's coming that way. And uh, it's risen it's risen, so that it's now 20% of the Australian migrant intake. If it can get to 20%, it can get to 40%. We've got to stop it.
4: That doesn't exclude people from being a genuine refugee that are having a genuine case just because they've come that way.
1: No, no, and that's, that's, the, that's the legal position. But I would hope we can get to the day when we can increase our humanitarian intake, which the Rudd government wants to do, from 20,000 a year to 27,000 a year because we're recruiting them all from camps through the UN-approved process and people smugglers aren't intruding on this process with with boats that contain people who will be regarded as genuine refugees and people who are coming here for economic reasons. That's the ideal. None by boats, none by boats, but all coming, all coming, all the, all the refugees coming as a result of a flow of humani- uh, that comprises the humanitarian intake being brought here out of the camps, people seen by the UN to be refugees, and coming in this way so that we feel free to increase the humanitarian intake at 27,000 a year will be way ahead of Canada, and second only to the US in absolute numbers, and in per capita numbers, the largest in the world. That's where I want Australia to be.
0: Another question? Well, while we're waiting, I might, I might ask myself, hmm. uh, Senator Carr. How much uh, of Australia's uh, current posture on asylum seekers and, and the credibility of it now hangs on this August 20 meeting that President Yudhiyono is organising in Jakarta between origin, transit and yep. destination countries. Will you be representing Australia at that meeting or will it be Immigration Minister Tony Burke? The two of
1: us, and uh, I wouldn't say it hangs on it. We've got, under, the, under all the, the commitment we've got to the so-called Bali process, and compatible with everything that's going to be on the agenda at August, on August 20 in Jakarta, we've got our own regional resettlement arrangement, and that's something we're obliged to take uh, unilaterally. So the nations of the region will take unilateral action, regional action, and global action. On the global front, uh, what we're doing is saying there ought to be an international conference to look at how the the, uh, Convention on Refugees is working in in, in practice, Not not to cast it aside, not to amend it even, but to look at how it's actually being implemented. So global action, regional action, and unilateral action, and um, that's how it it fits together. But nothing... For our part, our own action um, is likely to be acknowledged in general terms in Jakarta, Um, but we're looking at at building on that uh, regional cooperation.
0: Fair enough question just at the front
1: here. Yep, um Helen Davidson from the Guardian. Um just want to ask about the um, the recent cuts to foreign aid. Oh, sorry.
4: Sorry. You go. Um with the recent cuts to foreign aid in the um, economic statement last week, given that there's been a number of pushbacks on the date for us to reach the 0.5% target of our GDP in foreign aid, how realistic is it to expect that we will actually meet the
1: target 2017-18? Yep. Well, there's been no cut in foreign aid. No cuts. There's been a slowdown in growth. And when you've got Australian revenues drop, as they have dropped, then you've got no alternative. You can't run a deficit to fund recurrent expenditure. And foreign aid is recurrent expenditure. So we've got a big and a generous foreign aid budget, and it continues to be increased, but the trajectory of the increase has been curbed, and we will reach the target on the same date. That hasn't been affected by the May announcement.
0: Another question? They're lining up now. Okay, we've got a question on Twitter uh, from Walkley award-winning journalist Winnie Bacon. Um, she says, Senator Carr, have you seen the documentary No Fire Zone? Um, she says it depi- uh, meticulously depicts war crimes in Sri Lanka. If not, will you watch it if you're given a copy?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to watch it.
2: Our our approach
1: on Sri Lanka is to... I I did this when uh, Foreign Minister Perez was in the the country uh, about six weeks ago, uh, is to raise persistently at every meeting, at every opportunity, the need for reconciliation, continued progress on reconciliation in Sri Lanka, especially in the north, and especially implementing the government's own agreed benchmarks in the Reconciliation and Lessons Learned report, the government's own report, and uh, we're unabashed about holding them to achieving those recommendations. So when I spoke to Foreign Minister Perez, I raised all of that. I raised the need for for journalistic access across the country at the time of the November November, uh, uh, Chogham meeting. Um, But the view we've taken is that engagement with Sri Lanka to get these advances is going to work better than isolation of the country. I just want to say this. I believe that the country went through three and a half decades of a most monstrous civil war. And we can't allow one narrative about that civil war to become the only narrative, because civil wars of necessity have two narratives. And there were shocking atrocities committed. There was the invention of suicide bombing by the Tamil Tigers, the destruction of religious monuments, and the world looked the other way. The world looked the other way when bombs went off in Sri Lanka and claimed hundreds of lives. A bombing in Iraq gets far more attention when it claims a handful of lives than the bombs that went off day after day in Sri Lanka during three and a half decades of civil war. I'm fond of American history and I know how long it took America to get over its four year long civil war. Now it shouldn't surprise us that there are a lot of unresolved questions out of a civil war on this small island that went on for three and a half decades. But isolation gets us nowhere. We will attend Chogham. Every other every other country in the in the Commonwealth is going to Chogham. And when I've met Tamil and Sinhalese representatives, and I've done it Usually, half a dozen occasions in Australia, I've said to them, You've got to achieve a reconciliation. You can't keep peeling back and refighting your civil war. There's got to be a reconciliation.
0: Uh, Sorry, I I, I think. um, This better be the last one. Yes, go. um, What about uh, crimes after the civil war? We
1: we think, well, no, I've said before, a full accounting, a full accounting for the crimes of the Civil War and we pursue we pursue alleged um, human rights concerns post-Civil War.
0: Enough. Enough said. Thank you very much Peter Harcher for some very, very perceptive questions and to the Minister for being very, very generous with your time and extremely candid, particularly during the middle of an election campaign from Syria to the South China Sea, from asylum seekers inevitably to the Security Council. Thank you very much to you both.